Hello everyone and welcome to Popscreen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are that corner of the Geek Show that likes to look at the good, the bad and the preposterous of movies, either starring about or by pop stars. No other podcast covers a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a writer for the Geek Show, Byline Times, and we are cult as well as a filmmaker myself. And I am joined this week by... Hi everyone, it's Joe Miller here from the Geek Show's animation podcast, The Dreaming Machine. Hey Joe. Clearly a great candidate to do a show about U2, but clearly I've been selected because U2 have done a couple of animated videos, right? So there's a clear connection there. Yeah. Yeah, and like um, that could be a nice quiz question. Like exactly, like what were the two animated videos? But I uh, will come back to that. <laughs> yes, there's there's never been. It feels like Bono and the Edge would have done the songs for some big animated movie by now, right? But instead, I think they only they only did that for the Spider Man musical, which is a good, solid, sensible choice. I just know that as a B-side to the Fly single. Um, but yeah, like, um, no, sorry, that was a Clockwork Orange musical they did. So you're right, they did what? a Spider-Man musical more recently as well. You're not aware of that? I wasn't aware of that, no. Um, the Fly single, um, one of the B-sides is like their attempt at a soundtrack to a Clockwork Orange musical, I believe. Right. I was full of random trivia about E.T. But, um, but yeah, um, there was a Batman song they did in the 90s and I'll Go Crazy If I Don't Go Crazy Tonight as an anim- animated video, I think. Um, right. Which I bet, like, you may not know. But anyway, so yeah, clearly I'm a great candidate. But yeah, I have a lot to say, a lot to say about E.T. And um, yeah, but from the animated podcast Streaming Machine, check us out where it's a really fun podcast. And thanks for inviting me here today, Graham. It's all right, yes. Last time you were on was when we did Idlewild, the Outcast movie, Indeed. which I think we both enjoyed. We were both very big Outcast fans. You are clearly a YouTube fan after a fashion, right? Uh, kind of. You have a uh, complex relationship with YouTube. I have a complicated relationship with them, yeah. I mean... Like they've done some good songs and good albums, but I'm not really mm. like a, ma- a massive fan of certain like elements of them, and I'm very picky about which bits I like by them. I would co-sign that. Yes, I think you mentioned. Had you seen this film before? I hadn't, although I felt like I had. Because it's it's kind of like um, it's become like musical like um, shorthand. It's like shorthand for like that point in a certain band's career, right? It's like yeah, you know, like like you might yes. say like this is their white album. You say oh, this is a rattle and hum period where it went down a certain path and maybe went too far. Um, so I, so I felt like I'd seen it, but I hadn't actually seen it. Like I, I jumped over from Joshua Tree straight to Acton Baby when I was going through mm. the discography. So it was really interesting to watch it, like having felt like I'd watched it and saw the like mythology and all the story behind it without actually listening to the damn thing. I remember you had mentioned the quote that Bono gives when they cover Helter Skelter by the Beatles a great many times to me. Uh, and I was absolutely flawed to realise that this film opens with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, claiming the saving, like this song from Charles Manson, uh, Manson yes. right? I mean, and I do appreciate it was a different time period. Maybe there was a bigger issue, but it's like you don't need to save this song. It's Helter Skelter by the Beatles. You, you don't. It's not a song that needs saving, <laughs> especially not with your slightly ropey cover version. <laughs> <laughs> but that that sort of sets up i think because because we, we should mention before we start uh this film has a reputation that is maybe not the reputation it has now if you look on letterboxd it has a very high average rating because i think anyone watching this film in 2023 is watching it because they are a massive youtube fan and if that's where you're coming at it from, you know, I, I it's a it's a good viewing experience. The performances made me think, oh yeah, I, I like you two more than I thought. But yeah. 
there's also this other element to it. Yeah, it's kind of this, um, which I think, to be fair to the band, they kind of recognise to an extent hmm. um, yeah. about this, like, saviour, like, being saviours, like, that kind of, like, feeling to it and being, like, sincere, like, like to a fault, like, yeah. like cubed, like, like to a ridiculous extent. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's interesting you say that. I had the same experience. Like, I had the negative view of Rattle and Hum the film and the music based on everything I'd read about and heard about, including what the yeah. band themselves have said about it. And I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I would. <laughs> it was like, you know what? They yeah. were a good live band. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it's well-directed. I mean, the mm-hmm. interview questions are like really facile and ridiculous, but that's kind of put the fun, like just seeing them pissed off by the interview questions, I think. So like, it's actually well-directed. It's the performances are great. It's really well-filmed. Um, and it has like, you know, it has an like exit it, uh, in God's country. It has um, it, it, bad, and it's got like some really powerful, like good songs in there. Yeah, so yeah. I can see like either you're a big U2 fan or kind of you're interested in the musical history of it. Maybe might be another like maybe more niche audience who might watch it. The musical history bit is where I think the problems come in because while there are some good sequences dealing with that, the the fact that it opens with a Beatles cover sets the tone in that every song seems to be Bono begging to be part of the rock canon. Every song features like a line from Patti Smith, a, a refrain from the Rolling Stones. It's recorded at some studio. You know, they they cannot stop impressing upon you how they you two deserve their place amongst these <laughs> artists i i half agree with you um i'll do i'll have a slightly different view on this because um like like firstly yes that's true <laughs> like let's, let's be really clear about that and it is it puts me off the band too and i'm normally yeah. i'm more forgiving of like i know i shouldn't be but more forgiving of like big rock star cliches and heart on your sleeve and stuff like that because of my bit of my musical taste but even it, they go too far even for me i mean the whole thing like when like i really cringed when like bono like did the graffiti graffitiing like during the song i just couldn't like doing another <laughs> ropey cover right it's just yes. like i was like oh for god's sakes really like and then they had to apologize i've had to, have to apologize for that afterwards but um as they should have. I mean, just on aesthetic grounds. <laughs> but they didn't even commit to this like big gesture. <laughs> so, like, so that that's true. At the same time, my slightly different view is like it's you two being you two. They're they're really rubbish at like not being like not thinking about their place in rock and roll history and going even when they went in their more like satirical like I, I don't know. Not maybe not satirical, but the nineties phase, basically. You know, when they're a bit well, that, more um, yeah, tongue in cheek. Even that, like, is sincere to a fault. And that's like Bono even that. said, like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but um, like, even when they're making Zuropa, I read a quote Bono saying, like, we thought we were making Sergeant Pepper kind of thing, and like, it's just like, it's maybe an EP became an out. Like, everything had to be a big thing. Like, all the tours have to be a really big thing. So I just think it's in the DNA to do this. He just can't help themselves, I think, basically. Yeah, that sort of 90s phase of U2, even up to Pop, a record which I like a lot, uh, is the stretch of U2 that I really enjoy. And I think after the response to Pop, they sort of panicked and they became safe and they've never really got out of that, in my opinion. But it's, it's interesting just sort of looking at that in the light of Rattle and Hum, obviously it's a reaction to Rattle and Hum. It's a reaction to having this film which where everyone says, oh, you're ridiculously self-important. But it's also the work of people who are thinking very hard about what it means to be lightweight and flippant. You know, they are making sort of ironic pop music that doesn't mean anything with a very careful focus on what that means in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. And they got away with it because it was the 90s and everything was ironic and everything had <laughs> yeah. to have a double meaning. So it was fine. <laughs> but it's like 
that's the nearest they can get to just letting their hair down is to do a whole concept album about what it means to let your hair down. Yeah, I, I think you're right, actually. And I was having, I often get thrown into existential crises when I prepare for podcasts, but um, I had one like <laughs> last week or two where I was listening to a lot of like UT's albums again. The couple for the first time, actually, um, just to get like understand the context a bit more and get yeah. my head around it. Um, and they're actually like you could you can make the argument they're quite a conservative like not politically but like into the music they're quite a conservative band so I've, yeah. I've got this like theory which you, you know may drive people mad like but I, I just want to throw it out there anyway that um <laughs> because they got this like kind of image at least in the 90s they did of like being like a like, being brave and changing the sound um yeah they're actually like quite conservative and slow to change sometimes i think mm. so like um so when they did acting baby they kind of backed themselves into a corner with rattle and hum when they did all you can't leave behind they kind of backed themselves in the corner at least commercially with uh, the pop album which had a mm. big impact initially but like long-term sales were really low and so they just like i don't know like compared to like other big major rock bands who have like those kind of pretensions like you know coldplay and rem and stuff that i think they're like a bit braver and like like just saying this is this thing this is this thing even if like whether people like it or not they're like a bit more like distinct whereas i think you two can get a bit muddled sometimes uh which is why it probably makes it really interesting like history when you go through their albums and things but yeah yeah. i think that's that's probably true and I can easily imagine a situation where Vaddle and Hum was a huge hit and everyone loved it, where they would just carry on down this path and not adjust at all. Yeah, but it doesn't like because because of they they them wanting their place in rock history, they just can't help themselves. Everything has to be yeah. a thing. Yeah, <laughs> like some people are happy just doing the same thing. You know, like Adele, like she's happy just doing the same thing, like pretty much again and again and again, like with respect yeah. to her. Like, you know, there's like, you could argue the album's changed a little bit, but it's still kind of, there's certain bands and artists who like doing the same kind of thing. Um, yeah. And they kind of do it, but but they want they have the pretensions of making big statements and pretending like they're changing a lot at the same time. It's kind of a weird mix. Like, yeah. You know, no, no line on the horizon, like, which is maybe then getting a bit more experimental. They like wussed out like halfway through and it just kind of didn't really do anything arguably you know so yeah just like um so violent home like it's similar thing where it's it was them kind of just going too far down that rooty like american history path really um even though it has good moments within it and it's still interesting to watch like it is misguided at the end of the day so did that start in in terms of the band's development, did that start on the Joshua Tree? Was that their first kind of attempt to make a big statement on America and the roots of rock and roll? Yeah, I mean, you could say like lyrically, like um, like Unforgettable Fire, like maybe has like references to that kind of stuff. But um, but yeah, so Unforgettable Fire, they bring in Brian Eno, like the record company's not happy with it at all, and and and. Daniel Illinois and and they kind of get that like dream producing team and then they hit out the park with the Joshua Tree, yeah and that yeah and they really go for, you're right they really go for that kind of style, um like even like, like have like you know Red Hill Mining Town like really like uh Trifuia Wires is that another one like they really go for that like kind of like like homespun like like really rooted in America like kind of in a slightly fake way because they're Irish of course yeah but yeah. So yeah, I think that is the starting of that. Um, but because the songs are good and kind of a bit weirder than you remember when you listen back to the album, a bit more like interesting. It is like a proper album. It kind of works, I think. Yeah, you mentioned some of the songs in here uh, that did work, and I do think there are some terrific performances. You mentioned Exit, which I think sounds fantastic. Yeah, X is brilliant, and like I was delighted to see that was in the. I was really surprised to see that was in the setlist. Actually, um, Exit is the one which really makes as hard as it can be to sort of realise and understand this. Now, Exit is the one that makes you realise, oh, this this band were contemporaries of people like Joy Division and Young Marble Giants. 
Yeah, uh, and, and the first couple of albums got criticised for being like too Joy Division like. I think. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. But 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 that's where the influence just works. It's brilliant. Uh, I mean, it's interesting as well. I think I mentioned this to you before. I was really struggling to find a ref, a reliable ref um, source for this. Mm. So like, it is a bit speculative. But I know like Kirsty McCall um, apparently was involved in setting the track listing for the Joshua Tree. Yeah. So, so that bit's like confirmed. I think that's true. Like she was a um, she was in a relationship with uh, one of the producers. But um, I read somewhere and I can't find a source for it. Annoyingly, so I can't like confirm this. Where there's this theory that the track list is based on her favorite to least favorite tracks in order. So on that <laughs> basis, exit. And so the first track and last track were set in stone, and then the rest was what they decided on. So on that basis, she just she did not like exit <laughs> because that's right. like that. <laughs> if that's true, but anyway, that's a slight digression. But yeah, but it's a great song, and they get gets recognized and stuff, and it's like really like vital and exciting sound to it. Like they yeah. are like a band firing on full all cylinders. Yeah, if you edited this film down to the concert footage, I do not think anyone would have a problem with it at all. But, <laughs> but. <laughs> yeah, the problem is, 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 as soon as you get past the first segment, you've got the first of those interview segments. And, and I was like, I want to say justice for Adam Clayton at this point, because they're, they're asked why they wanted to do this film. And Clayton says something like, I hope it'll be a musical journey. And they all just crack up laughing at that. Yeah. And I'm like, hang on, that doesn't even crack the top 30 most pretentious quotes in the film. <laughs> yeah, oh my goodness, indeed. I mean, that. but the fact they can't answer that question properly, that shows yeah. how misguided they were. They couldn't even give a proper answer, like why they're doing the movie. And it just totally lacks, it's not quite a concert film because they do this other stuff. Mm. The only bit of that other stuff that works is where they're like giving like non because I think the critics at the time like criticize them for being monosyllabic and some of the answers and things. Like they're the best bits because some of the questions are kind of dumb. Like what have you been yeah. up to since your last album? Like where the hell yeah. do you start? Wait, like, what do you mean? Like my my personal life, anything, yeah, whatever. Golfing, I don't know. <laughs> like, like come on, man. So it's yeah. like so well, yeah, but. So that's like, it feels like a real human moment and just like letting stuff speak for itself. But there's other stuff where it just gets too pretentious, basically, as you say. I think you're right. Yeah, because like after Clayton sort of makes them all laugh with his apparently ridiculous answer, Larry Mullen says, oh, we wanted to capture this Eva of the band because we're not the same band as we were in the war, Eva. Yeah. You know, it's... <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's been a few years since that. So, you know, there's a, there's an insularity to yeah. it. There's you, you can see the kind of belief that oh, of course it'll be a good film because everything we do is just so fascinating. The fact that we've changed over the past few years that's really interesting, isn't it? People will be fascinated. And they're not changed that much. Like, nope. it doesn't even work on that basis anyway, you know? No. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, you, the band realised it. Uh, the quotes that came out on the Love Town tour, like it did shortly after Rattle and Hum. Mm. Um, so Rattle and Hum wasn't... The, the film wasn't that bigger box office success or something. And they did Love Town tour after. And... Um, and yeah, like, like they said, oh, we've got to go away and dream it all up again. And um, we were the biggest band, but not the best kind of thing. So they, right. but they just, but they recognised it after the movie was made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so it was like, too late to do anything about those kind of moments. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I don't sort of mind the interstitial conversations they have that much because as you say they are mostly dull questions and they get dull answers and it's yeah. really kind of on the the sort of film's creative team to cut some of this stuff down i don't begrudge the band for it the problem comes the thing that everyone mocked comes with bono's bloody on stage monologues yeah 
I don't know. I wasn't as negative. Like, but I, I know, like, I, I've, I've read, like, people, like, they diss that, basically. Like, criticize that. I mean, I, I can, obviously, like, it, the one, the monologue that should get praise is um, the one about um, the terrorist attack and things. So you can understand that, that because it just happened, like, earlier that day or something on the concert. Yeah. That was really powerful. That's um, raw. That's not planned. You know, that it doesn't yeah. have that aspect where it's like they they talk about the end skill and massacre, and it's like you say, it just happened, and you could tell that this is something that Bono is actually mm. feeling rather than something that he's you know thought carefully about where he wants to position himself on, and it's it, it's good. You can appreciate it from that standpoint. Yeah, it's like. The other monologues don't quite work as well. Um, the one, the one about artists against apartheid, as Bono pronounces it, is like, yeah, man, you, you know, like we we totally agree with the sentiment. It's just like the execution <laughs> of it isn't quite right there. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like he he gets quite pissy with the crowd for being, I think, quite rightly bored by the spectacle. <laughs> Of uh, a rock star going on a lengthy conversation about economic sanctions, <laughs> repeatedly <laughs> using the words economic sanctions, which I think may be the least rock and roll words in the dictionary. And he goes, Am I bugging you? I don't mean to bug you. And it's like, Come on, man. These people just want to hear your pride in the name of love. What are you doing? Oh, that, that was really funny when he said, oh, yeah, I don't mean to bug you. It's like, okay, we're getting pissy now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, exactly. Although it did remind me in a nice way of the like the U2's cameo in The Simpsons. <laughs> uh, yes. I don't even remember this, where Homer like, invades the stage and um, because he's trying to become the sanitation commis- commissioner or something, and they're yes. trying to kick him off. And Bono says, no, wait, everyone. This is like really important. Like we have to like we've got to like understand sanitation, the politics of sanitation. Like let's let the man speak. It's like yeah, at least they kind of like eventually realize that like diatribe, like, like yeah, that monologuing like the feeling that the monologue all the time basically about that stuff and feel like they were changing the world. Oh yeah, because like they weren't. Uh, <laughs> as you rightly say, there is not a single political point in that monologue about apartheid that any reasonable person could disagree with, and yet you just watch it and think, "Oh, shut up, stop See, talking." Maybe it's just the way my brain works. Is like so one one extreme would be just to not do that, right? Mm. The other extreme, like, was probably what I would do, would be to have like a PowerPoint presentation and like break it down, like. <laughs> practicalities if you're gonna do it just really go for it and do this like very analytical approach that's good yeah Yeah, i can see vampire weekend doing that (laughs) i mean i i think like to be fair to you too um Mm. like because they get they get criticized for this a lot so i totally agree rattle and hum it just doesn't Bits of it just don't work and it's awkward and yeah. Yeah. Um I think sometimes they get a bit too much criticism for this stuff because it's kind of like in their DNA. I mean yeah, yeah that obviously the tax avoidance stuff wasn't great. Let's let's not dwell on that. But like um yeah, it probably have I've not looked at the figures, but they probably have done quite a lot for charity and given quite a lot of money away and they put and you know, I was reading this thing about um the the peace agreement in Ireland, yeah, and it is Bono's like weirdly, like like weirdly involved in that, and like I think it's partly because the politicians on both sides didn't want to like upset the cool rock star who really was like really going for them, like um to get the deal at the Good Friday, um the, the yeah. agreement over the line, like was reading this um article on it, so like um so I do I do get like they they probably have had a positive impact and things like that, um but it just like. So I defend them a little bit and that kind of stuff, but yeah, rattle and home, they just go too too far and it's just too awkward and it's yeah, just like, it's just self it, to it, it, and it's more the tone of it. I don't even like I, I think like one of the members in the in interstitial bit says like, oh, like I think it's I think it's Adam Clayton who says um oh, like I think it's rubbish you can't talk about politics. It's like I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. 
musicians are human beings and i think there's been too much of a reaction to that where you feel like you can't say anything without people rolling your eyes and stuff it's like that's yeah. fine but it's just like the tone of it is so like self-congratulatory and yeah and it's, like, it's, it's, it's a dead end like <laughs> Yeah. I think like anyone watching this film who did not know the history of South Africa would just assume that it ended because of Bono. That <laughs> Bono was really the guy who, uh, much more than Nelson Mandela or Desmond Tutu or any of those other comparatively minor no, figures in the end of apartheid, <laughs> Bono definitely did it. But uh, yeah, while we're defending Bono, I will say there was something that occurred to me when I was watching it that I can't quite answer, which is that Bono's belief that rock and roll is like this sacred force for good and rock stars should be leading the way on everything is not a million miles away from how Bruce Springsteen talks about rock and roll. Mm. Yet, no one really has a problem with Bruce Springsteen in the way they do with Bono. Yeah. Um, and I don't know point. why that is. I just thought it was yeah. odd. I, I can't even... I don't know why either. I can't even explain it because the explanations that jumped to mind about, like, you know, um, you know Bruce Springsteen's viewed as a more blue-collar guy. And yeah. I, I don't think really... I don't think Bono... Like, I don't think if you compare them, like he is like much more privileged necessarily in his background or anything. I, I can't really explain it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just I guess it's like public image just takes hold, doesn't it? It is. I think it's very easy to believe in Bruce Springsteen as someone who's like in touch with his blue collar grafting roots when he like plays concerts where the council yeah. have to unplug it to get him to stop. Um but yeah, and, and Bono just for all, as as you say, I don't think he comes from like a massively overprivileged background or anything like that. But there is just something about him. Maybe it's the sunglasses where you think you like being part of the international jet set a bit more than you well, are letting on. Yeah, maybe. But I think didn't he say he had like an eye condition or something? Like there's a reason he was like. I um, didn't know that. Yeah, it was this great Norton interview when he revealed it. I was oh, like, okay, right. I bet a lot of people feel like bad about themselves or the comments they've done. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, and it's just like, um, I do wonder as well, like, um, I've, this once again, like, hugely speculative theory and, pro- and yeah. probably not true. But it's just like, um, I, I wonder if, like, people, like, there were maybe certain expectations about, like, especially in Britain, about, like, what a rock star should be and, like, not be over pretentious or have ideas, but you say kind of thing. And oh yeah, we, we super we grateful are. about. Uh, do you know what I mean? Whereas, like maybe nowadays, there's a bit more yeah. variation. And you accept like certain things. We are very good at cutting people down for being too ambitious or too outspoken. Yes, that is true. Like I remember this great, great Paul McCartney quote when um, where um, he talked about um people like criticizing him for being arrogant it's like well mm. he's, he's like well he asked me if i think i'm good at songwriting and the answer is yes of course <laughs> i think like is it is it yeah why we why do we get so annoyed by people being factual about things like yes um, like uh, it's good like you're not really down you can recognize what you're good and bad at you know uh, it's just um and i do feel like hugely speculative like no evidence for this but it just feels like uh, there's less of that criticism of arrogance and i think like because you get um like pop music's maybe more international and it's it's okay to be confident and have that attitude actually helps and like selling a song and people recognize that more maybe i think in terms of like modern pop music as opposed to like any kind of historic rock music what has changed is that pop stars have become very good at selling their self-confidence as being like a gift to you I noticed this <laughs> around like the start of the 2010s. I felt like every pop star wanted to be my life coach. And, you know, <laughs> I hate it, but it worked. <laughs> you know, people who yeah. like Beyonce or Lady Gaga like them because they see them as inspiring figures. And that's something that pop stars, that, that is pa- a standard part of a pop star's appeal now. 
Yeah, you could actually. Yeah, it, it's. I'm saying it as a good thing, but it's arguably not a good thing because you know if you're part of like, is it the Beehive? If you're a Beyonce fan, or, yeah, yeah. Or you're Monster if you're part of Lady Gaga, or or you're the Army if you're part of BTS. It's kind of like, yeah, this is my tribe that work. Uh, you could argue they do good things for each other, whatever. It's a community. That's great. But it is kind of like in worship of this idol at the top of it. Yeah. That's maybe not the most healthy thing in the world in a way. It isn't. I, I wish someone should make a HBO show based on that premise, uh, preferably with the guy who did Euphoria. I bet that would be the best show ever made. <laughs> I have to confess, I've not seen it. And, and I'm careful not to comment on things I've not seen. Although, yeah, like it's been, people haven't been kind to it. Let's say, have they? <laughs> no, I, I, I have. I don't have your uh, ethical qualms about this. I haven't seen it, and I hate it. <laughs> uh... Yeah. But yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean, and I think anyone who's like. Meta Nicki Minaj fan uh, is aware that pop fandom can lead people down some really toxic paths, but mm. it's also just like I think it's artistically bad. You know, the the pop star who, to a great extent, turned me around on mainstream chart music and brought me back to it for the same time uh, for the first time since I was a kid was Taylor Swift. And I think it's telling that her one stab at doing big, affirmative, I'm awesome and therefore, by extension, you're awesome kind of pop that everyone else was doing when she was coming up is me, which is probably the worst single she's ever released. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I I do take your point, though. Um, Mm. I mean, at the same time, even though, like, some of the the messaging you get out of that is like you know cliched or like too like um like too um you know too hallmark basically and things actually in this messed up world maybe it's quite nice that people like put out positive messages as well oh yeah yeah it it, but but we're back to sort of bono talking about how apartheid is bad really (laughs) aren't we you know when when katie perry tells me that self-esteem is a good thing and we should all have it no disagreement there I just have a problem with the art that is then made from these sentiments. Yeah. You, you know what? Maybe it all comes down... Yeah, because we've kind of gone around because, because there's a complex issue, right? And mm, this, is, yeah. this is part of the existential crisis I've had like, with, with you too as well. As a, but um, at the end of the day, if the song's good enough, you get away with stuff. Totally, right? yeah. And Rattle and Hum, the new songs they did weren't quite as good as the two albums before arguably like yes, covers and yeah new snippets they did and stuff i mean it's, it's interesting how i'm looking at my notes and most of the songs that i've noted down are songs that were not on rattle and hum the album yeah which, which were the new songs here by the way yeah they did um i'd have to look at my notes again for the titles but yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's an indictment in itself in a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, like Desire was like a big single, obviously. Yeah. Um, and that that was a new one, but it's um, and there's a couple towards the end of the set list that were like um, that were relatively new as well. Was Angel of Was Angel of Harlem a new one as well? Actually. Um, anyway, I'm I digress. Not... Yeah, I'm not sure how controversial it is for me to say this, but I'm not fond of Angel of Harlem. No, me, me neither. And like um, the most vital performances of with the older stuff, and, and that's not just me. Like, like clearly, I know like those albums better. Like, but like honestly, like trying to watch it objectively and watch all the songs, like I think that they were the most vital pieces. I mean, having said that, um, I did like a couple of the moments with uh, guest stars. Um, although one of yeah. them was on a Joshua Tree track, still haven't found what I'm looking for with the, with the, um, the Harlem Choir in that. Um, yeah, choir. yeah. Um, and you know, vocally, that's like amazing that performance. Yeah. 
Um, and funnily, I, I listened to the album as well, like separately, the album version, and it wasn't as powerful as seeing them like in a room together just doing it. It's like the compared to like the live performance, like in front of an audience. Yeah, that kind of connection with each other was amazing. I felt a bit more real, and but also BB King, I was like, huh, you know what? This this stupidly redundant comment, but he's a good guitarist, isn't he? Like, <laughs> he as, like is. As someone yes. in the band, someone in the band would be like, "It'd be quite nice if you could just call him in and say, I oh, just can you just have some guitar do- overdubs to this? Would that be okay?'" Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk a bit about guitar playing because I I do like the Edge's guitar playing, and it's it's kind of unfortunate that this has like the more one of the most mockable bits is when Bono has just like gone off pouting because the crowd don't want to hear about economic sanctions on South Africa. And he goes, go on, Edge, play the blues. And he plays (laughs) something that could not sound less like the blues if it was like (laughs) an album of children's nursery rhymes. But, you know, a genuinely groundbreaking guitarist. And I don't know if you've ever seen that film, It Might Get Loud. Uh, no, no. It might get like it's it's you know it's it's kind of an interesting film. It's not great, but it's it's watchable. It's like a multi generational guitar hero summit with uh, the Edge and Jimmy Page and Jack White all yeah. talking about their their playing. And there is a moment where the Edge starts playing the opening riff to Elevation, and he starts playing it, and he then cuts out all the effects pedals. And I swear to God, it is exactly like that moment in that Bill Bailey stand-up show where he, <laughs> yes. he pretends to be the edge and his, he, he, his, all of his effects pedals cut out and he's just like playing one note over and over again underneath it. But <laughs> he absolutely admits that that is what he is doing. He is really energised by the fact that there is this technology now that can take quite a simple melody and blow it up into this big sort of techno wall of sound that that's part of what he does yeah now i i like 80 percent agree i still think he, he just like he needs to like vary it up a little bit more because like there's other like guitarists like who you know i was like um like johnny buckland from coldplay like when brian eno came in to like mm. fix the band after the like x and y was a massive mistake like um he said that he encouraged him to use different pedals different sounds you could hear like the guitar just sounded really different like yeah i mean i was listening to the latest run of like you know noughties and like 2010 albums you two did and the guitar still kind of sounds the same as like the 80 style like just different effects on it but it still came yeah at the same time though he's written some of the most iconic like beautiful soaring guitar lines ever He's responsible yeah. for maybe it's in it's at least in the top five favorite guitar solos with the guitar so the solo on the fly is like unbelievable, stunning. Yeah. Um yeah, and that that um that epic solo he does in that in the concert is is great. I, I forget the track title, but that's great too as well. The, is it for um, Bullet the Blue Sky? Oh, it might be, yeah. Yeah. Um that, that was that was really good by the way, that performance. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so he is, a, he is a really good guitarist and there's nothing wrong with using those effects. I just like, I just love to sneak into his equipment like and just add a couple of pedals without noticing. Yeah. <laughs> like, because he's so good. Like he's so talented. Like I just feel like, I mean, I'm being a bit harsh maybe. I know Zoo Rope and Pop had like, was a bit more varied like guitar wise to be fair. Disco yeah. Tech, I think, is a amazing song guitar-wise because everyone just sort of accepts that as a sort of big clubby, dancey track, but the riffs on it are really heavy, and yeah, it yeah. somehow manages to make that into part of the texture of it. It's again, it's it's one of those things where part of what I do love about the, those albums is that they do feel like they hit the '90s zeitgeist and that kind of we're a rock band but we also like techno thing was something that was like <laughs> specifically you could only get away with in the 90s nowadays if you were like a rock band and he said i'll tell you what we also like some dance music and you're like yeah 
Everyone does. What What do you want about you know the <laughs> idea of a rock band using sequences and samples is not groundbreaking anymore? But there's something really fun about seeing you two just a few years after they were anointing themselves the Irish kings of yeah. the blues suddenly go for like that big techno production and postmodernism, like kids in candy shops. I think it's great. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right, actually. And like, even though I said you could argue they're quite slow to change and that they're not as like forward thinking as people maybe give them credit for, um, when they do change, they do really go for it. Yeah. Like, on the flip side. So like they maybe do one album too many in a certain vein. But then they're like, but when they do change it, they really go for it. And like, um, whereas now I think I'm gonna sound so old here, but it's just like, yeah, like yeah, it's not a big deal now to like incorporate dance and electronica, but it's just so like, like sanitized and like streamlined, and it's just like, it's, it, whereas like if you hear like disco tech and the the, the like ridiculously chopped up processed guitar and yeah. Like, um, and uh and the kind of dance beat and the video like is amazing too actually but like it's just all of it it's just like they really really go for it so you gotta give them credit for that i think um but although that's an i know it's a bit of a digression but that kind of backs up what i think about how they kind of don't know what they're doing as a band sometimes like for mm-hmm. a weirdly like big act so like um because the pop album they re-recorded several of the songs for like the best of like viewing it as a big failure yeah, like, maybe it's, it's, I don't appreciate it's subjective, but for me, like the re-recorded version of Discotech's nowhere near as good as the original kind of thing. Like, they, I just like, and the same with Rattle and Hum. Like, they don't quite know what they're good at or what they're bad at or like what the right direction is. They just they lose away sometimes in the career. I think. Yeah, and I think it's it's part and parcel of being that big because you you sort of lose the freedom to say oh, this album that was a big hit is an album that I don't like. At best, you can get away with having like one song that's your creep, you know, that's the big hit that you don't like playing anymore. Yeah. But otherwise, it all reminds me of... Was I reading? I think a very, very old interview with Brad Pitt uh, where he said... um, Someone said to him, oh, Tom Hanks said that his worst film was some, like, trashy teen comedy he made back at the start of his career. (laughs) And uh, Pitt said, wouldn't it be funny if he said it was Forrest Gump, though? (laughs) And I think that's the problem that anyone who's that famous has, that even if you two sincerely believed that, say, The Joshua Tree or boy was their worst album they couldn't re-record it for the greatest hits they know that people are buying the greatest hits for those songs and so yeah any kind of i mean you and i are both manic street preachers fans and i sort of wish they'd stop dicking around with their reissues as well <laughs> yeah yeah no i think that's true like, i think um some bands kind of, um, yeah, they, they they go over safe basically. Yeah, um, I mean, my two features like um, when they did the Know Your Enemy reissue, I was pleasantly surprised because they they kept the rough edges and the cool bits. As they yeah, did that was interesting. So I, I like, think mostly it's just like. Um... <laughs> I hate underdogs, but I also kind of get annoyed when they replace it with a B-side for the reissue of that album. It's like, well, yeah, what you did, and like, yeah, like this is my two three issue. They um they replace what they added prologue to history, which is a fantastic song, but isn't really like that Doesn't style. And nobody loved you did yeah. fit and was quite shocking. Like when it comes on and wakes you up, kind of thing. Absolutely um, agree. Yeah, so they're not. So you two aren't the only band to like not understand themselves. Um, no, no, I think it's it's probably more common that you think that they have. There are artists who have this panic reaction whenever something doesn't go over big. I guess maybe part of this is a compliment. Maybe there just aren't enough big artists who take big swings and therefore find out that the public don't like what they're doing. 
you know, maybe some artists yeah. just play it so safe that they never have this dilemma at all. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Like, I, I, I don't really have a counterpoint. I, I agree. Um, I think, um, I think that's the kind of thing I miss is like um, these big. I mean, you get big segments in other ways. Like you do, um, you know, Beyonce did a visual album. You know, like, yeah. um, like yeah, you, know, you get certain bands who are like like massive, and they make a the the way they release the songs and the albums and the and the the art artwork and videos that goes with it is spectacular, like really interesting. But yeah, because of stylistic shifts in the music, and um, they don't really get that like as much anymore i'd argue i think that's true really like a lot of it yeah. and i mean i think what is maybe i mean it's not all like negative i guess like there's a lot of more genres like crossing over to each other so there's maybe less of a big deal as well to an extent yeah i think so sometimes you get that kind of eclecticism like in the course of an album i think it's delightful that megan the stallion can just like do a house track in the middle of her last album and absolutely ace it i love that album i love that song yeah um but i i have this pet theme about it it's partly because record companies are like either not part of an artist's development or they're just so stingy now because when you read about artists in the past even artists who weren't like massive sellers who weren't hugely successful when you read about those artists getting like five or six album deals as standards you think oh yeah it's it's probably quite easy to experiment there isn't it like someone like elvis costello who i am a huge fan of his career makes so much sense if you imagine him going into the studio thinking well, I could record a jazz album and I could record a country album because <laughs> they, they can't get rid of me if these things go wrong. If this if this goes disastrously wrong, I can always just bang out another, like fill out my contract with another load of three-minute pop-punk songs. I can do that. And now, yeah. of course, record companies are so cash-strapped that they can't give out contracts of those lengths anymore. So there's, you've got three album contracts and there's pressure for each album to top the last one in terms of being like streamlined and polished and commercial and playing to your strengths. And this is how you get bands like Tame Impala, who like, about 10 years ago, I was quite a fan of. And then they right. started streamlining their sound and they've got to a point now where they've really smoothed out anything remotely interesting about it <laughs> yeah no i think yeah I, I do totally get where you're coming from i think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying i do think um i mean there is like an art to crafting a, a good song like um, yeah which as i get older i recognize that more um yeah absolutely yeah um because i was very much of the theory that like um like you should always be pushing yourself forward doing something different every album and like some you know there is like a, a like some bands and artists aren't good at that um mm. and like as, as you all have covered like um and uh you know so i do get that and like if you write um songwriting craft and that kind of thing but but yeah but there should still be a bit more like um yeah i still think some bands it's important for them that each album is its own thing and is a big statement like and you choose one of them and they i think they lost their way a bit like no line on the horizon where they don't fully commit to that and they just hold back a bit and yeah not a massive surprise they're the ones who like have the least impact commercially i think like very simply yeah yeah Um, absolutely um and so yeah, it is interesting though. Um, I mean, I, I do get that like, it's quite easy for me and you to say this after the fact as well. When like in, yeah. when you're in the maelstrom, like um, there's always a craziness going on, and um, and you two have hit in the eighties. They had hit the big time, you know. Uh, Joshua Tree, like yeah, you know, Unforgettable Fire was a big a big album, and like, uh, Pride was a massive track. But um, Joshua Tree like was just incredible, like exponentially like larger and bigger and crazier um so 
you can understand why like there'd be all these pressures and things to do certain things and like and not really knowing where you, where you should start i mean but you know i just wish i was around to say don't start with a cover of helter skelter like done not as well as the original <laughs> beatles version <laughs> it's it's one of those things too isn't it? it it always staggers me that there was a time when you two rvm and the smiths were kind of at the same level in the mid 80s those bands were yeah. kind of as big as each other they were big kind of college indie bands as big as you can get within that sphere but they weren't yet stadium bands and of course, you two became that and stayed that. RBM became that and mm-hmm. stopped being that after a while, but still, you know, remained big, um, just not quite as big as you two. And the Smiths imploded before they could get anywhere near that. But yeah, it does make you very aware that there is a parallel universe version of you two that split up after the Joshua Tree and are now just sanctified and now just considered one of the greatest bands who never got their fair shake. It yeah, is quite yeah. strange to think of them that way, but it's true. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And it is really interesting. Um, and, like, I- I'm glad they did, like, I'm glad we're not in that alternative universe because a lot of the 90s stuff, as we as we both said was like fantastic so um so yeah so i think like going into it it was that i understood that rattle and home was them going too far they're going like just not as interesting and then that led to them realizing their mistakes yeah i think that's still true having seen it (laughs) but (laughs) but i i still like i enjoyed bits of it a lot more than i expected because of the quality of the music and the quality of the performance and just knowing that you two are going to be very you two and how they go about things. Like, yeah. um, so I, I actually enjoyed it. I was into it more than I thought I would be like, in preparation, but I'm still like, yeah, I'm still glad they, like, you know, acting baby was definitely the right direction after I'd say. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there's a couple of bits that i think we have to talk about because they are so extraordinarily self-parodic i mean which one of them is it who goes out to elvis's grave oh yeah yeah i can't can't remember which member but i remember that scene yeah and this is after spinal taps came out Didn't someone like a critic say it reminded them of the Spinal Tap movie? How could it <laughs> like... not? How could you be thinking of anything other than Spinal Tap? The miracle yeah. is that whichever band member it is wasn't thinking about Spinal Tap when they were following him with a camcorder waxing lyrical at the grave of Elvis. Yeah. Bizarre stuff. Yeah, and even like um even like the moments that should be good. Like, you know when they discover that like um is a blues geo or something in the street performing oh yeah yeah i mean that's quite a nice moment and i I, i'm not doubting that they aren't like sincerely enjoying that you know when yeah it's just like it just feels a bit like queasy how the focus is on like the edge like watching them and it's like okay they've deigned their approval i'm not (laughs) i I honestly don't think the band were trying to do that but it's just the way it it's shot and oh that's just suffocating yeah the it's like too much love of this band kind of thing. Because, yeah. And it was a weird thing to say for a concert movie, but yeah. No, I absolutely think that's true. Uh, like you, I think they went into that scene with the best intentions, but it is like, it, it's sort of like paying in exposure, isn't it? It's like, here's a couple of homeless people. We're going to put them in our uh, documentary about the world's biggest rock band. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it just yeah, um, it's just messy and lacks focus and tonally is off. Like, uh, that, that are my three takeaways, I think. That's good. Yeah, I think I can I can go with that as a poster quote. But but you know, it, um, if anyone is watching slash listening to this and not seeing it, like do check out some of the some of the performances are great. I mean, I kind of wish they did it all in black and white. Like I don't, I mean, the color scenes are good too, but but I just love the black and white shots of them. 
that's a bit of that where it works. Yeah, I, I get that, but I will say I, the colour photography is by Jordan Cronenweth, who uh, had just finished shooting Stop Making Sense, so he knows what he's doing. And the moment you see the first colour in the film during Where the Streaks Have No Name, I think that's a really magic moment. Fair, fair point, fair point. Like, and it's like, still brilliantly shot. Um, yeah. And of course, the American flag during Bullet the Blue Sky, um, yeah. which would, wouldn't work in black. Well, maybe it would actually, but... Um, it would look like it, they were trying to do a homage to Sly in the Family Stone. And I think they've, yeah. Uh, yeah, they, they've probably uh, tipped their hats to enough, um, <laughs> enough greats of the 60s by this point in the film. Oh, God, yeah. It's like... Um... We should emphasize, actually. Um, so I know it's a bit. I know it's kind of back going to a nice conclusion there, but I do want to say, like, the covers are weirdly like not very good. Like it's weird. Be I say weirdly because the other performances are so um, energizing and, and great. Yeah. Um, and it's just like all along the Watchtower. It's like, I mean, not only is it really an imaginative choice for a cover, but it's just like I was just surprised at how like anodyne and like lifeless it was it was weird i didn't i agree i think part of the problem is that like i said they are performing these songs so they can impress upon you that they respect the music and it's like that that's that's all i get from that song i understand that they respect bob dylan which is like yeah you know who doesn't but it's not exciting (laughs) nah yeah it's just weird like it kind of I mean, it kind of should be in a way, but I think you're right. That probably is a reason. It's just like, it just like, it doesn't, like from a musical perspective, it just, it lacks like, it just seems off. It just lacks vibrancy. I can't even explain what, explain it, but it just, it just doesn't work. Um, I think cover versions of, of a rarer talent than people think as well. I think that the number of artists who I think are genuinely great at cover versions is very slim, in my opinion. Bowie became good at cover versions. He had a few absolute clangers in his early career, but by his, his later albums, he became become really good at cover versions. Johnny Cash obviously made every song his own. I always look forward to a new Cat Power covers album. But, yeah. Um, these people are the exceptions. They really are the exceptions. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Actually, um, like, as a big Beatles fan, like I've just heard so many of their songs massacred. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, but yeah, Cat Power, like, is fantastic covers and um, Johnny Cash, Definitely. as you say. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, um, but it's just like it's just because they open with one and and it makes such a big deal out of the covers. Yeah, it's, it's just like it makes it even worse. Like normally, like a band like squirrels away a, a dodgy cover towards the end of the set list. It's not I can't real. get my head around opening with it. It's literally saying to the audience, hey, are you here to see you too? Well, tough. Wait your turn. They're going to do this first. I mean, I, I do like that you two are a bit mad in the set lists, weirdly. Yeah, like, um, because yeah. I, I got a Popmark DVD, the Popmark tour DVD. Yeah. And just like the set list is all like all over the place, and I love it. I, I, I think um, I think there's that thing of like I go open with a big song, and then like, I read this quote by Elton John actually prepping for Glastonbury. It's like oh, yeah, you start you start off big, and then like you carve it down. Yeah, uh, he's a really crude like sexual analogy for it, but that's what he's saying. <laughs> and then like you have a big finish like towards the end. It's like, but now nah, actually I kind of like it where like you're on your toes and. Yeah, and yeah. It's like you have a weird deep cuts and they have big things like in a row and like um so I, I do give you two credit for that, but it's just like but it just doesn't work yeah. Like <laughs> I guess you're gonna have hits and misses if you do that and yeah. Yeah. But yes, I think that's that's covered it quite nicely. I think I I I feel like I should probably go back to some of those nineties U two albums, maybe. Because you've uh, you've reminded me how much I do I did love them at the time. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it um it was a lovely excuse for me to re re listen to some of that as well. Like um, 
Um, even though I felt like should have kept it as an EP, I do think Zuropa is like really underrated. Um, there's some brilliant songs on there. Um, and you mentioned pop as well. Um, and like, you know, I do think um, they just kind of like they don't really have a certain like theme at the moment as a band. Maybe the last few, like um, you know, songs of innocence for the Apple debacle and stuff. And yeah, that was the theme for that album. Uh, we're going to really piss everyone off. Yeah, and yeah, some of that was overstated. It was just like it, it was a bit annoying, but like I think people maybe you know, I'm you know. I remember my computer having Buddy Holly video, which is way better. Like, that was an amazing, like, a Weezer video. But, like, yeah, I'm used to, like, computers having songs built in. Yeah. So it was a bit overstated, yeah. like, how, like, but at the same time, but musically, there wasn't, like, a massively clear direction from that period. Um, I think and... that the titles are more conceptual than yeah. the albums at this stage, aren't they? Yeah. So it is, like, from. Um, so like even so the later stuff like it's a bit underrated has some good songs in the albums but I I just think the nineties was when they were really like they were really going for that like that, that yeah. some of the best songs and they're really going like thematically like really strong like in what they're doing so yeah I mean songs of innocence did at least inspire that amazing joke in pop star never stop never stopping where Conifer Real releases his new album in fridges and every time you open your fridge. <laughs> Plays it at you whether you like it or not. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird that, isn't it? Like, um, another digression. Like, <laughs> it wouldn't be a pop podcast that digressions. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean that film's fantastic. It's so funny that film. Yes. Um, but yeah, I remember like, um, I had like, um, so I, I got the Wingspan like best of Paul McCartney and Wings like compilation. Oh, yeah. As, yeah. Because I was a weird teenager, right? And I saw this documentary. A lot of these things, like, like this is like 90s, naughty things, right? It's a VH1 documentaries, right? Yeah. So you too, I got the Joshua Tree because you, um, VH1 had the top 100 albums program, right? These yeah. programs goes on for like several days. And um, it builds it up to finding the top album. And so, like, that's the first time I heard of Akun Baby and Joshua Tree as a kid. I'm yeah. seeing that. So I heard the big like ninety singles and stuff, but that's when um so Joshua Tree was ranked first on the top hundred albums list. Wow. And Acton Baby was like twentieth, I think. I still remember it to this day. Um I'll just let that settle in. So like uh so, so, so that made me really interested. Um, um but yeah, also um so yeah, so, sorry, Graham, if we edit this out, I just remember my point. <laughs> what was fine. I going to say? What was I saying just before you two? Oh, Paul McCartney. So, anyway, um, so I go into like Wings due to um, like um, seeing another documentary on TV. So, it's like yeah. you couldn't just stream what you wanted. So, you just like saw this stuff. And I got Sea Moon. Have you heard of Sea Moon by Paul McCartney? That was became my alarm. It's like a B side that was on because. The Paul McCartney song "Hi Hi Hi" had too many drug references, and so BBC did the B side as the main single. Right. And like the fridge thing, I put it on as my alarm clock, like on my phone. It was like the time that beautiful age of mobile technology where you could set a song as your like ringtone or your alarm yeah. clock. And I, I absolutely hate that song now because it's like every <laughs> time I had to get up, <laughs> like opening the fridge. Every time I had to get up was because of. Um, yeah, I knew I'd get to the point and how I related. Like every time I had to get up was like um I was like, Oh my man, I have to get up and there's like do 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 that that like little funky melody. So it went from being one of my favourite to one of my least favourite songs. That's and I think perfect. I, let's bring it back to you two. That's what they learned from that experience of doing that album <laughs> on everyone's phones. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. We've got to end there because that's such a great story. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but yes, if you uh, donate to our Patreon, you can get a bonus episode of this here podcast every week. Uh, next, I think it's going to be blind spotting. I think I've teased Rob with giving him an excuse to talk about clipping for so long, uh, and I'm finally going to pull the trigger on that. Um, but until uh, we, we've got a lot of other stuff on our Patreon as well, actually, I've just started doing X Files reviews on there. 
uh, we've got a new podcast uh, uncut from the video store where um, we look back at horror franchises from the past. Uh, yeah, and, and loads of other stuff. So, but until then, uh, we'll be back in a fortnight with another episode of Pop Screen. I've been Graham. I've been Joe. And we'll see you in two weeks' time. Thank you.